Welcome to the Everybody Assumes podcast. I'm your host, Mishulam Unger. Here, we try to unpack the most complex events of our political era through the eyes of a 19-year-old absolutely fascinated by politics and history. while since the last Everybody Assumes podcast. I apologize for that. Gotten caught up in some stuff involved with the election. Um, But this episode is really, really good. Um, We have David Mikofsky and Dennis Ross. David Mikofsky is my first ever repeat guest. I want to thank him especially for that. And uh, Ambassador Dennis Ross is also uh, amazing. Uh, Ambassador Ross played a huge role in the Oslo Accords um, and since the 1980s has played a major role in almost all Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, including in a number of senior roles for President Obama, uh, President Clinton, um, Bush one, and Reagan. Uh, Dave Mikofsky was a journalist um, during the 1990s and covered Yitzhak Rabin. Um, now he's a think tank scholar in, in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Institute along with Dennis Ross. Uh, they both work at the Washington Institute. Uh, where uh, David is the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and head of the project on Arab-Israeli relations. Um, And in 2013-2014, he served as a senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. They recently co-authored a book called Be Strong and of Good Courage about how uh, four Israeli leaders made uh, four historic decisions that shaped the country's uh, history. In this episode, we discuss that book and we talk about how history really uh, affects the way that uh, prime ministers look at their legacies and the country and how historically mindful they are. Um, we spend a large part of the episode talking about annexation, possible application of Israeli sovereignty over areas in the West Bank, um, talk about some of the risks of that and why it might be happening now. They have a, a really complex take um, from the eyes of uh, a diplomat and a reporter and a scholar. Um, really, really fascinating. And uh, we, we talk about some other things. I hope you enjoy. Just as a disclaimer, uh, the views expressed here are solely my own and not of any organizations I work uh, or work for. On a final note, there are some technical difficulties at the end. I apologize for them. And I hope it really doesn't mess up uh, your listening experience. Anyways, their analysis is still sharp and incisive. And I hope you enjoy it. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, doing this podcast. Glad to do it. Happy to do it. So let's just start. What exactly is annexation? Like most basic, uh, most basically, and what would be annexed in this annexation? Uh, like what, how do you exactly define the Jordan Valley for someone who doesn't know or the settlement blocks? Just very briefly. Uh, you want to start there or you want me to? What do you want? Uh, you want to give it in the broad brush, and then I'll uh, fill in some of the geographic detail. Look, the the essence of annexation is meaning that Israel will apply its law and its sovereignty to areas within the West Bank. Uh, and uh, one thing Israel committed to in the Oslo Accords, this is true for both sides, is that it would not change the status of the territory prior to a conclusion of negotiations, uh, meaning there were supposed to be negotiations on the permanent status of the territory. And what that meant was that uh, Israeli claims of sovereignty versus Palestinian claims of sovereignty would be resolved through negotiations. When Israel takes this step, 
it's acting in a way that is uh, that is inconsistent with that commitment. It is now saying we're not going to wait for negotiations to uh, to act on the claims that we have to the territory. We're simply going to impose it unilaterally, and we're going to do it based on territories that were allotted to us by the Trump plan. So roughly 30% of the West Bank uh, was allotted to, to the Israelis according to the Trump plan, uh, and that includes all the settlements. There's 130 settlements in all, and it also includes the Jordan Valley, uh, which is the area that runs along the, the border with Jordan. Uh, so that's the way to think about it. Now, what is likely to emerge? Uh, Sorry to stop you there. So. Yeah. So Oslo set up the the groundwork of two states, which you, Dennis, helped played a massive role in and David reported on. So that laid out the groundwork for two states, but it was never fully implemented. So it it's a little bit of a mess now. Yeah, it is. But let me put it this way. It was something very interesting about Oslo. Statehood as an issue was actually never identified. And the reason is the Palestinians didn't want to somehow imply that it wasn't a right of theirs. And the Israelis didn't want to acknowledge that they were already accepting that statehood was the outcome of the negotiations. So statehood per se was not a part uh, of the original Declaration of Principles. Uh, but what was, was a decision that at the end of five years, obviously that didn't happen, uh, there would be an agreement based on permanent status and permanent status related ultimately to the disposition of the territory and whose sovereignty it would be under. Mm -hmm. So, so now, but your point is that it's a mess is correct. It's a mess. So now Israel is saying um, we're going to bypass that negotiation, whatever, and and take a new territory. So specifically, these settlement blocks in the Jordan Valley. You know, for a regular American who doesn't know about Israel, never uh, served in the Israeli army, why did those areas matter? Well, you look, take I, yeah. But, um, look, so. Like you heard from Dennis, like the whole Oslo thing was, you know, we we can't agree. Uh, we want to get started. The toughest issues will kick down the road. The reason why it got so messy were, you know, the interim uh, agreements were were extremely difficult. And Dennis, who was very much at the center of this, will, will attest to that. But the toughest issues were left down the road. So the messiness was that incrementalism happened, but only went so far. You know, to be fair to the Israeli side, they would say, look, you know, we tried and with Clinton 2000, 2077 and 8 with Condoleezza Rice, the third effort I was a part of with the Kerry team, 2013-14. These were efforts to uh, to resolve the entire conflict. I'll resist my usual baseball analogies. But um, but the, the, the fact was, was that try to negotiate an outcome. It's just that you know, the Palestinian side was was not willing. So um, this cannot be kept in limbo forever. Also, there was a time where Israel moved more to the right for a variety of reasons. The second intifada, I think, had a huge impact on that. Over a thousand Israelis are killed. I should say 3,000 Palestinians are also uh, died in the intifada. So there were, there, there's a whole history to, to the point we're at now. It didn't come out of nowhere. Um, you know, the, the issue of blocks and non-blocks and the Jordan Valley, these are things Dennis and I really do. I, I try to do a lot in this website, Settlements and Solutions, um, to identify it. As Dennis pointed out, there's 130 settlements. 
But the, you know, the irony is, is that a majority of the settlers live in a minority of the settlements, 52, inside what we call today the security barrier. About 76, 77% of those just in the West Bank, if you include East Jerusalem, you get the number of 85% of those over the green line, that's over the 1967 boundary, uh, live in 8% of the West Bank inside that barrier. What the, what the Trump plan does, and that's part of the annexation debate, frankly, is instead of saying that the block settlers, which are, like I said, three quarters or above, of all the settlers in, the, in that inside the barrier would be part of uh, Israel and a two-state solution. The organizing principle of the Trump administration says, no, all 130 settlements, not just the 52, 130, they are all Israel. 15, might we call them, enclaves, but they are, they, they're also de facto annexed. So what you, what you have is the annexation debate is coming in inside the context of a Trump peace plan that says, you know, if you give that 70, you could keep the 30. There's another 10% of offsets, the territorial exchanges inside Israel. I don't want to complicate things further. But the point is, is it's that organizing principle of the Trump administration that is really the backdrop for the, the, the debate. And the question is, and Dennis and I are you know, writing about this now, is, is this an annexation plan or a peace plan? And if it's a peace plan, you can't just have your 30 if you don't grant the 70. And uh, the annexation debate is Israel saying we want to front load the annexation, whatever the, the, the focus of the 70, that's something separate. So can you kind of take the cherries off the cake, so to speak, uh, you know, to take the parts that you want, or do you take a fraction of that? And that gets into, you know, the views of the security establishment, the Israeli domestic politics, blue and white. We can talk about that. So let's say Israel does annex on July 1st or August 1st or whenever, basically before the presidential election on November 3rd in the United States. Talk about uh, like what ramifications might we see and what are ones that we might not see? You know, it's a very it's a very good question and it's very hard to give a definitive answer. Uh, options, options. Well, I would even say, but this I mean, there's a range of different outcomes. Maybe all of them could happen. Maybe none of them could happen. Maybe some mix of them could happen. One of the things that we can't know is what's the real effect on the Palestinian Authority? Uh, will the Palestinian Authority survive? What happens if it collapses? It creates chaos, and then suddenly Israel is responsible for all the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel is betting that— So just, so just briefly— the Palestinian Authority runs the major Palestinian cities inside the West Bank. It does. And that's where the majority of Palestinians in the West Bank live. They run not just the majority of the, they not they run not just the cities. They also run, there's about 472 villages. And those are part of what's Area B. They're not responsible for overriding security there, but they are responsible for all domestic issues. They're responsible for planning and zoning. They're responsible basically for day-to-day -day life. Uh, they, have, they have a whole range of different ministries. Uh, and they're responsible for law and order uh, within, within those areas. So just under 40% of the West Bank, they have a kind of either near total authority or, or partial authority. If that were to disappear, then suddenly Israel's responsible for education, health, water and sewage. Uh, they're responsible for everything. 
Uh, and if that's the case, that's going to add a huge burden to Israel in a financial sense at a time when they really don't need it, given the financial consequences of COVID, uh, and also raise all sorts of security questions as well. Uh, so, you know, now maybe that won't happen, uh, but it's, it's an unknown. And you really have to ask yourself the question, is it worth the risk? What is Israel actually gaining? The fact is, maybe we won't see what I just described, because maybe Palestinians will say, What's, our life hasn't changed today from what it was yesterday. Israel declares uh, annexation, but our li today our life is controlled by the Israelis. Tomorrow our life will be controlled by the Israelis. So maybe there's, a, there's just a kind of fatalistic reaction to this. And uh, there's no way of knowing for sure that won't happen. Uh, on the other hand, we already see signs from the Israeli security establishment indicating they're quite concerned about what may happen. One of the reasons I think they're quite concerned is because they really don't think that Abu Mazen at this point has a whole lot of credibility with Palestinians. And whatever he may want, even if he says he wants to, that the PA will collapse or will turn over the keys to the Israelis, he's done that, he's made that threat before. And I think there's a concern that even if he doesn't want things to explode, there's no guarantee that he can control it once this sort of is set and uh, in effect unleashed. Um, meaning you could have you could have something take place that maybe the leadership of the Palestinian Authority don't want, if they want to threaten it, but they will lose control over. In a lot of ways, the Second Intifada was something that I think Yasser Arafat planned, but he didn't plan for it to get out of hand. He didn't plan for, for him to lose control over it. Uh, and I'm not saying this is what's going to happen now, because I'm, I'm saying to you, I honestly don't know, but anybody who tells you they know, you should be somewhat skeptical because there's a lot of uncertainty here. Uh, and, and I don't mean to equate it with what we've seen in this country with the impact of George Floyd. But the point is there sometimes can be events that simply trigger things that you that take on a life of their own. And this could be one, this could be exactly one of those events. So you've laid out the risks inside of the West Bank for the Palestinian Authority. So what about the risks, say, to Israel's neighbor, uh, Jordan, and then also its sort of uh, quiet but important relationship with the Gulf states? And then finally, with uh, Democrats and Joe Biden, Democrats on the Hill, all three very important uh, groups. I'll take a crack and Dennis uh, say what I missed. But look, in terms of Jordan, I think the fear that the you know the king has been public saying this would be a massive collision. He said it in an interview with Der Spiegel. His uh, prime minister Omar Razaz, I believe is his name, said to Christian Amanpour on CNN, "This would lead to a freezing of the treaty." He said it publicly. Uh, I don't think it would be a cancellation. The security establishments uh, work beautifully together. I was just in Amman meeting with them before Corona, and those relations are great. But. The fear is, what if the Palestinians give up hope that there is no two-state solution? And do they put kind of demographic pressure in Jordan? Could this destabilize the Hashemite kingdom as we know it? Or Talk uh, about why the Hashemite kingdom is just so unstable. Well, a good number of their people are ethnic Palestinians. I mean, they'll be disputed if the number is 50, 60, whatever percent. The queen of Jordan comes from a Palestinian family, I, I, I believe, in, in the West Bank. And so, you know, this fear of what they call the alternate homeland, uh, Watan al-Badil, this is something that 
you know, they still remember Ariel Sharon, Jordan is Palestine. The irony is, is that Israel and Jordan have outstanding relations. And, but, and there'll be someone around the prime minister who thinks Jordan needs us because we're the bigger player. And, uh, you know, they need us for security. They need us for water. They need us for gas now that Israel is exporting gas to Jordan. There is a variety of infrastructure things that link the two countries and security concerns. So they feel that uh, what can Jordan really do? But Jordan is, I think, concerned about its future stability. And again, as Dennis said, you could say these are worst case scenarios, but there could be a dynamic that you can't predict fully where it goes. But the Gulf states, I think it's you have to look on two levels. A lot of the issues related to Gulf and Israel are related to things that are very much in the interests of both countries. There's a strategic convergence, uh, you know, when it comes to Iran, that as I was in Abu Dhabi and one of the Emirati officials said, look, we don't know if Trump's going to leave the Middle East. We don't know what Trump is going to do. But we know there's one country that can't afford to leave the Middle East because they're in the Middle East. That's Israel. So I think that there are certain interests that will remain under the table on security cooperation. I think Israeli technology they care a lot about, that will remain under the table. But Israel doesn't just want to be the under the table guy. They want to be over the table, on top of the table. They want overt recognition. They want to be at Dubai 2020, Expo 2020, which is now I think Expo 2021. You know, so a lot of those overt things we hear from Gulf officials are very much uh, gonna be stopped uh, if annexation continues. Um, and, you know, you, we saw a fascinating uh, outreach by uh, someone very close to the real ruler of, of the Emirates, Yosef Oteba, the ambassador of Washington to an Israeli publication, Yediot Akronot, uh, leading publication there, mass circulation. Um, and so uh, the Emirates is really a country Israel cares a lot about. Um, and so a lot of these things could be put in jeopardy, at least the overt part. Maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I don't want to talk too much. I'll, I'll defer to my colleague, Dennis, talk about bipartisanship, and some of the other issues as well. I would just add two points. Uh, I agree with everything David said. I think you have to bear in mind, um, one of the great ironies is that Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to do this because he thinks it's going to create a new baseline that it will establish basically these will be territories that will always be part of Israel. And any future negotiations will start with the basis of uh, 30% of the West Bank will be Israeli, not 0%. And the problem with that is that you're going to have European states that won't, they won't be part of the European Union as a whole won't agree to this, but you're going to have a series of European states, Ireland, Sweden, Spain, maybe France, will recognize the state of Palestine on the 67 lines. And rather than creating a new baseline, because no one's going to recognize it internationally, other than the Trump administration, rather than creating a new baseline, you may be, you may be cementing the old baseline. In fact, not even, not even the baseline that has evolved, because the, the baseline that has evolved is 67 and mutually agreed swaps. You know, the 67 mutually agreed swaps meant you never have June 467. You actually absorb the settlement blocks. So you actually cement what is a line that is actually worse, and you run the risk that many of these European states will, will no longer go along with a major investment that the EU does uh, in, for example, the R&D sector within Israel. Domestically here, you deepen the division among Democrats, you strengthen the what I'll call the left wing or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that mm -hmm. tends to look at 
this conflict through the lens of the Palestinians as being a victim and the Israelis as being a victimizer. Uh, you you put the, the centrist Democrats who really s- still deeply believe uh, in the U.S.-Israeli relationship and will do all they can to protect it, but you put them on the defensive. And we're you, seeing this play out in New York right now in uh, between Elliot Engel and Jamal Bowman. That's right. That's a, It's symptomatic of what you're going to see on a national scale. Uh, and you also deepen the division uh, within the Jewish community uh, as well. Uh, and you make Israel, you, you basically turn Israel exclusively into a partisan issue. The, the, the depth of the U.S.-Israeli relationship has been based on a fundamental premise. That premise is not just shared values. That premise is Israel is an American interest, not a Republican or Democratic interest. Mm-hmm. You know, the political winds and fortunes change. And if you alienate the Democratic Party uh, and the political winds change, uh, you know, and then you and you have a Biden administration. First of all, he he's not likely to recognize what the Trump administration has done. Uh, and secondly, even if he personally is very strongly committed to Israel and has an instinctive support for it, uh, you you change what is the overall gestalt of how to think about Israel in this country. So the the price of doing this is high, and the gains may be very illusory. The, the new baseline that Prime Minister Netanyahu wants, uh, maybe it has a chance if there's a second Trump term. Maybe. It's still not clear others are going to accept it internationally. But maybe it has a chance. But if you don't have a second Trump term and you have a Biden administration, even with a president who is instinctively very close to Israel, and Biden is, uh, the fact is this is a risk that where we can see the risks are high, but uh, we we see the gains as best at being illusory. I would just add the cautionary tale for Israel on bipartisanship is the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And that Saudi Arabia, and, and I'm not saying if it was put all your eggs in the Democratic basket or the Republican basket, the genius of Israel was always to, that this was a bipartisan issue. I would say after the centrality of the IDF, this U.S., the bipartisanship when it comes to U.S.-Israel relations has been a pillar uh, for Israel's security. But look at the U.S.-Saudi relationship. You had an ambassador who was nicknamed Bandar Bush, uh, Bandar Ibn Sultan. And during the Clinton years, he actually lived in Geneva. He said, as long as I have the Republican Party, I'm set. All I need is one. And we saw with all these horrific uh, things of last year with the Khashoggi affair and other issues, uh, suddenly they turn around, they don't have friends. So when you don't try to cultivate bipartisanship in this country, when you need it the most, you know, they're not there for you. So this, you know, learn a cautionary tale by anybody putting all your eggs in one basket, whatever that party may be. So um, just talk briefly about this, because I want to talk uh, about your book and about history. Um, can you talk about like what the dynamics are between the current Israeli coalition, between uh, Benny Gantz, the former IDF chief and the Minister of Defense now, and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister? What are the internal dynamics? Um, no, no, no predictions, though. Just how, how does it work now? Well, there is a you, you have what amounts to a national unity government, uh, although Gantz, by making the decision to join the government, split his party. So even though the numbers are equal in terms of ministers, there's a huge gap in terms of the numbers that Likud has and what Blue White actually has. But 
I'm, I do think we're, we, we have a reality where Gantz and Ashkenazi, so you have two former chiefs of the Israeli military, defense minister and foreign minister, are both much more hesitant to proceed with annexation unilaterally. They ironically, this is what David and I have just written, they ironically, they're the only ones who actually embrace the Trump plan. Because it within they could, they embrace annexation. They don't embrace the Trump plan. Uh, but Blue White embraces the Trump plan and says, "Okay, look, we think this is this is good, but we have to do we have to embrace the whole thing, which calls for statehood, <laughs> which mm-hmm. talks about a swap, uh, and we want to do it in a way that doesn't create greater instability in the region. We want to do it in a way that that protects our peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan. We want to do it in consultation with the Palestinians. We don't want to do it unilaterally in a way that's in a sense disregards everyone else." So Netanyahu wants to push ahead. They have been more hesitant. The administration sent a signal that they need agreement before they can bless anything. There are discussions this week at the White House about how to proceed. It looks like there's a, uh, a, a, a an evolution mm-hmm. where Gantz and Ashkenazi may go along with an annexation, but a dramatically smaller one than the than the whole, and only in those territories that, in which there's a wide consensus within Israel, and in which every preceding peace proposal uh, has had these areas part of Israel, even prior to the Trump plan. So, meaning a small part of the bloc area, uh, and it seems that that's where the administration may also be headed. I will say this: I was having a conversation with a senior Arab official, uh, and I was saying, "Look, what would you think, uh, even though you know?" We think, I think that annexation is a mistake at this point. If Gantz and Ashkenazi succeed in scaling it back but not stopping it, what would be your reaction? And he said, you know, when it comes to this issue, we Arabs don't do nuance. (laughs) It's annexation or it's not annexation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, And I would say, just to put this in context, I'll tell a story here. Mm-hmm. Uh, after we were at Camp David uh, in the summer of 2000, uh, I went and I briefed a number of senior Arab officials and leaders. Mm-hmm. The first one I briefed was uh, Saad al-Faisal, mm-hmm. foreign minister of Saudi Arabia, educated at Princeton, uh, was very knowledgeable, 30 years as a foreign minister at that point. I brought him a map to go over what we did in Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem was the one issue they always cared about. Uh, and the map was not a small map. It was a like three feet by six feet map. So you, I, I was showing great detail in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but I thought that Jerusalem was just the, the wall city. And I said to him, that's a postage stamp. That's 35,000 people at the time lived there. as one square kilometer. It's a postage stamp given the size of Jerusalem. Now, here was someone, I said, well-educated, highly knowledgeable, knew none of the details. Mm-hmm. The only thing he had Jerusalem, Al-Quds, the holy. The only thing he knew was, okay, the wall city. The idea that when, when this senior, the senior Arab official told me we don't do nuance, I tell the story because they deal with the, con- they deal with the conflict at a symbolic level. Mm-hmm. Annexation now is going to be dealt with at a symbolic level, not at what I would call a highly substantive level. 
Mm-hmm. So if you look at annexation as a unilateral step to cement Israeli presence in Judea, Samaria, and West Bank, then what would be a step that is unilateral, maybe on the Israeli side or the Palestinian side, that would further political separation and, say, a two-state outcome? Well, what if on the ground, a tachless step. Right. What if, if you said, for example, you're not going to build outside the barrier? You know, that's something Dennis and I, in our book, uh, Be Strong Enough, Good Courage, we we're very concerned about, um, you know, what if Israel becomes one state for two people? You create a binational reality. Uh, and because the twin, you know, uh, wings of Zionism, if it was a Zionist airplane, is Jewish and democratic. But if all the settlements are going to be Israeli, and if the Palestinians say, hey, there's really no state here, um, you know, then in a certain way, you're in this new world of a binational reality. And that's what our book is really about, is to try to warn people, not to threaten them, God forbid, but to warn them. And we see a major distinction between the two, that the old paradigm that it's about land gives way to, no, it's about rights. We just want to vote in Israeli elections. Um, Israel's got a GDP of over $400 billion. The Palestinian Authority GDP is like $15 billion. So if you were a Palestinian, where would you want to live? And if that paradigm shifts, what Dennis and I, we wrote this book, is our fear that, you know, that people in America will, uh, who are at the fringes will say, see, now it's about rights. It's not about land. And we're very worried about that. And we see this as a major turning point. And we wanted with this book to trace the journeys of four leaders who understood the issues of demography and geography throughout this conflict and the journey they took to grapple with this issue. And we hope to inspire people that these leaders define leadership not as popularity, but what was right for the people and for the state that they were so devoted to. Because for them, it was about country first, not about their own personal interests. So we hope it's an inspirational story, and we hope it's a very, we believe, a very current story about some of the challenges that Israel faces today and avoiding these major minefields that could shift the paradigm very dramatically. Say, I read the book, and it was very, very interesting, especially the early chapters, Begin and, uh, and uh, Ben-Gurion. Those were really, really uh, great chapters. Um, I just want to ask about one decision that's not in the book, and it might not be historic in the same scale, but there was the annexation of Jerusalem. So if you could sort of briefly talk about that and what were the political and the security and the military context um, behind that decision? Well, that was done uh, after the, the 67 war. Uh, and in a sense, uh, while it wasn't recognized internationally or even by the United States, it also didn't draw much of a response because it was very clear that the the war, the Six-Day War, was a defensive war. Mm-hmm. Israel isn't the one that changed the status quo. Israel isn't the one that suddenly put, you know, uh, mobilized its forces out of the blue. Egypt put six divisions on Israel's border, uh, put Israel in a position where it had to mobilize, and it's a country, if it mobilizes its forces, it, it basically brings its economy to a standstill. Uh, and it couldn't live with six divisions on its border uh, where the Egyptians could basically launch an attack uh, at any moment. 
So this was seen as Israel having fought a defensive war. Uh, of course, it ends up taking these territories. You had Lyndon Johnson as president at that time, who basically said, I'm not going to do what Eisenhower did. We're going to force the Israelis to leave the Sinai and get nothing in return for it. He says, I'm not going to force the Israelis to withdraw. The Israelis should only withdraw if they get peace. And he, in a sense, is the one who, he, you know, on, on June 19th, by the way, the same day that the cabinet passes, the um, same day that the, the cabinet passes the, uh, uh, a secret resolution on withdrawal to the international borders with Egypt and Syria, uh, he gives a speech in which he outlines a series of principles that are the principles that in the end become embodied in Security Council Resolution 242, which later became described as sort of the territory for peace or land for peace resolution. So Israel, basically, having been from 1948 to 1967, having been cut off uh, from uh, the Western Wall, uh, having been cut off from the cemetery on, on Mount Zion, uh, you know, having been cut off from what are the most important places in, in Jewish history, says all of Jerusalem now is ours. And it didn't, the fact is, while it wasn't recognized, it didn't really draw a response. Now, having said that, uh, the U.S. doesn't move its embassy there until Trump moves the embassy. So the what Israel did wasn't recognized, but it also, somehow, it was accepted. Uh, it, was a, it was a reality. If you ask me, what does Netanyahu hope for? He hopes that what this will be, this will create a similar kind of reality. The problem is he's doing it in a context where the move is not seen as being legitimate. Mm -hmm. Doing it in a context where he's the one actually violating what is in the Oslo Accords. Uh, and he's doing it in a context where you have an American administration that has what I would describe as no soft power. Soft power means we're such a form of attraction. We're such an attractive model that others embrace or follow our path just because of who we are. Uh, unfortunately, this administration has largely done away with American soft power. So a different administration prepared to recognize something Israel does that has soft power would be in a very different place. Let's say, for sake of argument, uh, this was the Clinton administration. Mm. Uh, Hillary or Bill? Bill, because we, we didn't have a Hillary uh, administration. Say it's a Bill, say it's a Bill Clinton administration. Uh, the U.S. was such a, a, a pole of attraction that whatever we did made it much easier for others to follow suit. Or let's say it was the George H.W. Bush administration, the same. You had American administrations who, by dint of the kind of standing they had internationally, when we adopted a position, others would follow. We have an administration now that has none of that. We adopt positions and nobody follows. So... The fact that the Trump administration is the one that is willing to recognize this doesn't invest it with legitimacy. Uh, and when you, you take a move like this that isn't invested with legitimacy, it's not one that the rest of the world is going to adjust to. I see. So I just want to go back to your book before we, we talk about current events more. Um, Ben-Gurion had an extraordinary grasp of history, and he just read an unbelievable amount. So can you talk about how his sense of history guided uh, the way uh, that he looked at uh, uh, the state of Israel and also how uh, just a really deep grasp of history uh, history dominates how Israeli leaders think? That's, that's a great question. 
You know, it's, we've never been asked that, but I, it's a great question. Uh, I, I'll just, you know, we, we um, I'll talk about Ben Gurion because that was the chapter for me that was very central. And I think that, look, he was trying to solve a huge problem, and uh, which was how do you end Jewish homelessness after 2,000 years of exile? And he, I think, you know, as you point out, he was extremely well-read. He, he lived a very Spartan life. The only thing he really allowed himself were books. His, his place in, in Tel Aviv and Staple Care, they're all over brimming with books. You know, he has like Thucydides, uh, was like right next to him when he was uh, the defense minister. And uh, they talked about a war seminar, like he, when he becomes defense minister for the Jewish agency in 1946, you know, he, he, he turned to history, really, to help guide him. But I think he, you know, he believed in a laser focus. And how much of this he got from history, I think, was probably, you know, when he studied great leaders, I think that was important. Um, I could tell you he was in the Blitz in, uh, in London in 1940, and uh, he was very moved by Churchill's leadership. And he was, I think, you know, he was actually in the London Underground while the attacks were going on. And he was learning Greek. I mean, he, he was self-taught. One of the great autodidacts of history. Learned, like, I don't know, 11 or 13 languages. I forgot. But a, a huge number. But what he learned from the Blitz was that a leader that's able to project to the public what they're sacrificing for, what's the broader mm -hmm. objective, that leader who could communicate to his public, that's the leader that people will follow. And I think that that inspired him. I know it inspired him in 1948 when he thought the public would sacrifice uh, during the toughest days of the war. When we write about this dr super dramatic debate about whether to declare the state or not. And I, and I do think he derived from the, his own past, not you know, necessarily a book, but that leaders who could communicate what the objective is, if you could define the end goal sufficiently, the people will suffer to get there. If they believe, if they buy in to the, the broader objective. So I'll just give that as an example. Dennis, you want to jump in there or? Well, I think it's, it's not just, I mean, obviously it's not just Ben-Gurion, although you asked about Ben-Gurion, you know, all four of these leaders were steeped in history. Now, the first two, because they're not born in Palestine, they have a, they feel a deeper need to create more of a, a basis of legitimacy for all their moves. Mm -hmm. So they want to draw from a broader philosophical historical context. In the case of Rabin and Sharon, they were born. They were born in, in, in Palestine. They never questioned whether they had a right to be there because they were born there. So their reading of history is different. They're also two military men. So they're not, they're not, the scope of what they read isn't the same of what you see with, uh, with both uh, Begin and Ben-Gurion. But it's heavily influenced by a sense of strategy, both of them. Both of them have the sense that you have to be tactically agile so that you're not put on the defensive, so you're not always reacting, but you also put it, you have to put it in a strategic context. Where are you headed? What are your end goals? 
And all four of these, maybe from a different starting point, but all four of them have this capacity to look around the bend, to ask the question, where do we want to go? Mm-hmm. And how do we position ourselves so we get there? They're not, I would say all four were chess players, not checkers players. Mm-hmm. They're all thinking, you know, several moves ahead. Uh, and for the two military guys, it's not surprising because they conducted military campaigns. The architect of the of the campaign in 67 was Rabin. The hero on the ground of 73 is Sharon. Uh, and Sharon, in terms of how he builds the settlements, it's not based on ideology. It's based on what he thinks from a security standpoint are the territories that Israel needs. Uh, and he creates a settlements plan in 77 mm-hmm. that when you look at the footprint today, the grid, that was, the, that was what he developed in 77. Now, he was also prepared to undo it because if he felt the circumstances changed and you didn't need that same amount of territory, you could undo it. But I cite it as an example to your question because look at his capacity to look ahead. His mm-hmm. vision was a vision uh, well into the future in terms of here's what we need. Now, of course, if our needs change, we can adjust. But this was a vision based upon a definition of need uh, and a capacity to look ahead. I just add Begin, the one we haven't discussed yet, his sense of history for a moment. Because what's fascinating about Begin is that he really saw himself as like a link in the chain of Jewish history. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if Ben-Gurion basically saw a rupture, that the, the Second Temple is destroyed, Rome defeats the Second Com- Commonwealth in the year 70 CE, and everything after that is like a vast desert with pogroms and anti-Semitism for 2,000 years or 1,900 years. Fagan really sees a very rich uh, Jewish diaspora, culturally rich, that is, that is really... And he's part of that chain. It's kind of ironic because people would think that Begin being the the Likud, Chayrut, whatever you want to call it, leader, being the more nationalist, he would would more define things as what they call in Hebrew shlilata gola, a kind of a you know a demonizing the the diaspora the, and um, you know and negating that's the word negating the diaspora. The irony is between the two. Begin saw himself as this traditional Jew who very much saw himself as a link in a very culturally rich chain of 2,000 years, that the diaspora had so much to contribute. And this is where the Talmud was was born and all the codexes of Jewish law and this beautiful religious tradition. And he saw himself as part of a historical chain. While I think Ben-Gurion uh, the two leaders, and Dennis is right, you know, the, the second two were born in the land and the other two were born in Europe. And uh, but but Begin saw him as part of a, a cultural chain of history. And I think uh, Ben-Gurion saw a rupture for 2000 years or 1900 years that he was now trying to reinvigorate. Uh, they both wanted to solve homelessness and victimhood mm-hmm. of the Jews. But. I think they had a different sense of historic context of their roles uh, between the two of them. And what do you think Bibi's sort of grand vision of uh, of Israel is, or does he not have one in your view? I think Bibi does have a sense of history. He's extremely well read, uh, but I think he also uh, 
he mostly has been tactical in his approach as it relates to the Palestinians, tactical and political. He's been more strategic when it comes to the Arabs, but more political when it comes to the, to the Palestinians. I think he sees the Trump plan as creating for him, uh, as I said, a baseline, an outcome that would be good for Israel. Mm -hmm. Problem is, as I said, that would lock down its borders forever. That's what I, yes, or at least it would make any future negotiations based on this premise, not on the alternative of the 67 lines. And that might well be a very desirable position to be in, but the only way it really has a chance of being sustained is if it's seen, as I was saying before, as being legitimate. And by doing it this way, he takes away the legitimacy. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that, for example, Eshkol doesn't act uh, immediately in 67, and it takes a lot of courage for him to withstand the pressures uh, for three weeks with the Egyptians mobilizing is because he wants the Israelis, when they act, he doesn't want to recreate what happened in terms of American pressure or even threatens of sanctions. He wants to be on the right side of where the U.S. is. He wants to be able to justify whatever action Israel has done. Mm -hmm. That's what drives him. It comes at a real cost to him uh, in doing that. But that's what drives him. He wants to create legitimacy for the actions Israel takes. Uh, and, you know, one can argue that doesn't have to be the, the main thing that drives Israel in every case. But this, by the way, is uh, in a case where Israel doesn't have a choice. You can understand, you know, it might be desirable to have legitimacy, but it, that's not the most important thing. Here, this is a case of Israel's choice. Netanyahu doesn't have to do this. He's choosing to do this. Now, if you're going to do something where you choose to do it, then you really need legitimacy. Mm -hmm. If you do something where you have no choice, you know, whether you have it or not is far less important. What I think both of us regret is this will lack any legitimacy and and it will damage Israel. You know, Israel has had a position in the West Bank and, and you know, internationally settlements are criticized. But there's been a baseline and the baseline is, OK, Israel's there. But it's but it's committed to negotiations. This is and therefore you can say, okay, they have a they have a right to be there so long as they're going they're prepared to negotiate over the future. Now it looks like they're not. Right. Look, the, you know, I think in certain ways Bibi thinks he's a disciple of Begin. We we don't think he is, but he sees himself as a disciple of the idea that right makes might. For Begin, it was crucial. Of a more yeah. right wing of Middle no, Eastern. No, right, Jews meaning that you have rights to the land, that gives you strength. It's not because you're militarily strong that you could do what you want, so to speak. Uh, so right makes might. Uh, I think what was really important to, to Begin. Bibi would see himself as a disciple of that. By the way, his father is a historian, Benzio Netanyahu, who wrote on the middle about the Spanish Inquisition and you know, I think Bibi sees himself as a really a historic figure himself. You know, loves uh, all the, he's read all the books of Churchill. He's he's the person who likes to think of the Jewish people in historical terms. So I want to be fair to him that he sees by making the borders of Israel, this is part of a historic thing. And he will say, look, we have rights to this land. We're not annexing something that doesn't belong to us. I mean, I think he will see it that way. And but as Dennis said, there's a legitimacy issue that he doesn't, he seems to ignore. I think once you get outside the Palestinian issue, he sees his legacy as taking what was a fragile state and was built upon by all of his predecessors. He'll never say that he built the state, of course. 
but that Israel has emerged as a real regional power. And if you add its military strength with the high-tech uh, you know, boost that Israel has, uh, it is a, a leading force in the Middle East. And I think he will see his legacy as projecting Israel's power in the Middle East writ large in a way that would thwart Iranian ambitions uh, for a more stable future for Israel and like-minded, pragmatic Arab states as well. It's not the Ben-Gurion days where all the Arabs were the enemies and you needed a peripheral doctrine of Israel-Turkey uh, and Ethiopia, you know, to, to, to leapfrog the Arabs. No, it's a different Middle East. And we should harness Israel's power that it could be, a, 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 on one hand, Western, a Western democracy, but at the same time, it could be a regional force to thwart destabilizing forces like Iran. I think in the big picture, that's what he would define for himself. He wouldn't want to cede the Palestinian issue that he's, you know, acting, uh, you know, recklessly. He sees himself, by the way, as very risk averse. And Dennis and I talk so much about this. But, um, but the legitimacy factor is something that he seems to be overlooking, and I don't think Begin would have proceeded this way. Hi, it's your host again, Mishulam Unger. There were some technical difficulties at this point in the interview, so the way it's going to end is I'm going to ask Ambassador Ross and then David Mikofsky what their favorite podcast is and what recent books have been most interesting to them. Thanks for listening. Well... My favorite podcast is actually Bill Simmons' podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, what book would I recommend? That's a tough one. Um, I can tell you, I, I, I just read a book that I found very interesting uh, mm -hmm. called The Inevitability of Tragedy by Barry Gowen. And it's about, basically, it's about Henry Kissinger's worldview. All right. Thank you. Sure. And now I ask those same questions to David Mikofsky. Oh, wow. That's a hard one. I, I, Off the top I, of your head. Throw them out. No, no, I mean, you know, look, I could just tell you that I'm, I've just finished Andrew Roberts' 100,000 pages on uh, Winston Churchill. That biography, I found that very interesting. Um, I'm now off to something on Shia and Sunni relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, in terms of social media, a podcast, I have my own podcast, Decision Points, that I hope others will listen to on super dramatic moments uh, on relations between Israel and the Arabs in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I listened um, to a bunch of them. I listened to The Daily and The New York Times. Uh, but there, there's a lot of good ones out there. Okay. Thank you. That concludes the 29th episode of Everybody Assumes Podcast with David Mikofsky and Ambassador Dennis Ross on this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I really appreciate Ambassador Ross and Dave Mikofsky coming on the podcast. Please like, rate, and share in as many places as possible so more people can find out about this podcast. Thank you again for listening.